Hello guys. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest, the greatest edition of Nick's Nonfiction here with your host, Nick Muniz. Today, we have got Lauren Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Get ready for a story of resilience, grit, redemption, mom's spaghetti. Louis Zamparelli, he spent time in prisoner of war camps, and he said more important than food and water is dignity. The commonality with these prisoner of war chumps who couldn't make it you know what, McCain? I like my war heroes alive. <laughs> He's going, the people who didn't survive surrendered their will in their final moments. I'm telling you guys, don't make me bore you with Victor E. Frankel, a debishy Jew with the Holocaust. This is a fucking Italian with the same message. Forget about it. Gestapo shaved my head. Forget about it. Japanese peeled off my fingernails. I'm walking here. This Olympian remained unbroken under the cruelest disciplinaries in the Imperial Army. You're gonna meet the bird today. He's taking orders, coal mining, spending hours in the Ofuna crouch, locked in an outhouse. And you don't even know, we're getting marooned today. It is the best story ever. Louis says the torture pushed him to a limit that he wouldn't have known was within him without the torture. So my message as always, torture yourself. Seriously, if that intro video didn't pump you up, you're dead inside. Get out the defibrillator paddles. This book is my heart. I remember I wanted to see it so bad I convinced my older sister to bring me to the movie theater. There's a piece of Louis Zamparelli in all of us. He's the quintessential immigrant American. My goal is to help you steal like the other dirty immigrants. Jokes! Nah, I'm just trying to light that fire inside of you, bro, with the best story ever. Listen close, you might learn how to keep pushing. Motivational story of the century coming up after a meme. About the author Lauren Hillenbrand. Harry Schwan on Instagram, patreon.com slash the niche. Lauren Hillenbrand, born May 15th, 1967, is an American author of books, magazines, and articles. Born in Fairfax, her mom was a child psychologist and father was a minister. She's best known for two bestsellers, this one Unbroken in 2010, and then Seabiscuit in 2001. And in college, she came down with this sudden illness, and she, this was like my own test of strength. I had chronic fatigue syndrome, and she came back from the brink of death, felt sluggish for years to write this book. Yeah, Laura, is it really that bad? My friends call me 1934 because I'm in a Great Depression. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with the book. Unbroken Chapter 1, Life of Louis. So it's a pretty long story. I'm about to throw in a dip. We can also take it slow today because we got to fill the back hour, as always. August 26th, 1929. Torrance, California. A train-like sound engulfs the town. A 12-year-old boy runs outside to see the Graf Zeppelin an 800-foot-long German contraption, the largest flying machine in the world, flying over San Diego. It was the summer of 1929. Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth are playing for the Yankees. Hitler's growing the Nazi party. This is where our story begins, and my lip is in. Louis's dad was a boxer, and then a construction worker, and then a coal miner. He's been working on his own since the age of 14. His older brother, Pete, 
said all he would do in New York was race the trains by their apartment. Okay, the story starts in New York. I promise I'll be better throughout the whole thing. (laughs) He was a rascal of a kid. He started smoking his dad's cigarettes butts at the age of five. He drank the leftover wine on the table by eight. Weekly theft by ten. If it was edible, he stole it. He knew he was the fastest kid in town. Nobody could run him down. He would deflate teachers' car tires with toothpicks. We used to grease the rails at school. Yeah, that could get you a lawsuit. Pete's older brother was 18 months older, suave, good-looking gangster of Torrance. His younger sisters, Sylvia and Virginia, they idolized Pete. So Louis was the odd one out. The Italians, he's going, we took our beatings in the 1920s because we were the new guys. And his temper is starting to grow with his age. He socked a teacher for being a racist. And then they threw tomatoes at the cops who were also racist. Louis getting in lots of trouble. His mom tried everything to change the kid. He kept fighting. They moved to California. And then she kicks him out. He lives on the streets of San Diego. Scared straight. They almost put him in a eugenics hospital. And Louis starts looking into it. He said this year in 1930, whatever it was, 20,000 people were sterilized in California for orphans, epilepsy, masturbators, and alcoholics. That was in the book. I had to write it down, bro. He's going, yo, if you act crazy, people will actually think you are. (laughs) Let's get nuts. Long look in the mirror. He's going, the street life isn't for me. I'm going to shave. 14 years old, he's rehabbing at juvie. He's uh, like looking for competition on the track, finally. He finds a new addiction. By 16, he's running varsity, and he sets his high school record at 5 minutes and 6 seconds. That's for the mile. I did a 505 in high school, Louie. Get at me! You know, people run 343s now. <laughs> this is 1932. Louie was running 800 meters barefoot. That's the hardest race. Two laps around the track. It's a full sprint the whole time. And uh, he starts dating dating this troublemaker chick who takes him to L.A. and they just break in places to go to sleep. 1933, he's in 10th grade. He enters the UCLA two-miler and then is able to beat all the kids in college. And then this man, Pete, becomes his trainer. He is senior year. He runs a 421. Four fucking 20, man. He has a chance to race Norman Bright. He's on the Olympic team, so they race at the LA Coliseum. He proves himself, qualifies for the 1936 Olympics. He has a race in Manhattan on the hottest day of the year, 106 degrees. And again, they're saying he's the best new guy around. Glenn Cunningham and Jesse Owens are going to be here at the 1936. It's history. The German Olympic Village had a shopping mall, a barber shop, a post office, a dentist, a sauna, and then the Jewish competitors were confined to the University of Berlin campus. I'm sure the Nazis left the horse turds kicking around there a bit longer. August 7th, Louis in the 5K final. 12th place after the first mile starts passing people. He put the effort in too late and he comes in 7th place, but he PRs. Like, how could you not run your hardest when Adolf Hitler is watching you? Joseph Goebbels is the hot head of Nazi propaganda. He's in Hitler's booth, and he personally grabs Louis to meet Adolf Hitler. Hitler says to Louis, Ah, you're the boy with the fast finish. He's probably messed up. 
he gave Louis a beer. Louis stole a flag from Hitler's booth, and then he got interrogated by a couple SS guards. He lays into his Italian accent. I didn't mean to. August 11th, leaves Berlin, home for the Olympic parade, and his eyes are in the 1940 Olympics, Tokyo, Japan. Chapter 2, Into War. Might be like seven or eight chapters in this one. 1936 to 1940, he was on the USC campus training for Tokyo. Bro, when I worked at friggin' Quench Juice Shop there, I walked by the Olympic Village every day. He meets this guy there, Sasaki. It's a Japanese exchange student. Sasaki went to Torrance every weekend to talk to the Japanese immigrants. He sent money home, cigarettes. He's going there collecting metal in Japan. It's getting bad over there. And in time, people find out that this guy, Sasaki, his wife and kids are not in Torrance. He's not really a student. He's closer to the age of 40. What? <laughs> this guy might come up in the story later. Louis is still the fastest one on the USC teams. He's breaking all kinds of records. Cunningham comes to run with him. Louis still caught up on the numbers. Four minutes cannot be broken. Oh, it's time for the 1938 uh, NCAA. In that race, the coaches are telling him to settle down. In one of the prelims, a guy broke a rib. So Louis runs the race. He doesn't settle down. The other runners box him in. They spike him in the shins. He finishes the race bloody at 4.08. So he's still like one of the top 10 runners in the country. 1938, China invades Manchuria. And then 1940, Helsinki bombs the Finnish runner that he raced in 1936. This guy, Hunter Hockett, he's dead. So the war's really picking up. The Tokyo Olympics, it's 1940, are finally called off. Louis's life is in shambles. He takes a job as a welder for Lockheed Martin. The scholarship at USC wouldn't be paid out. <laughs> They're like, you're not going to run at the Olympics, so you can't finish your last year of college. Fuck! If I was still working at admissions, I would have pushed his papers through. <laughs> he got some work as a movie extra. He failed the army physical because he binged candy bars the night before. It spikes your blood sugar. <laughs> I remember those draft dodging tips in high school. You eat a bunch of cotton balls and it shows up as a tumor in the x-ray. Dodge the draft, men. It's brave. He tries joining on his own terms in 1941 and they stick him in the Air Corps as a bombardier. This guy, Jimmy Sasaki, was under investigation for radioing the Japanese government. He was staying in this elite apartment building in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Bro, are, these, are there really Chinese spies running on college teams? Japanese blitzkrieg hits Thailand. They're hitting Shanghai, the Philippines, Guam, probably Midway, Wake. Louis is training on the uh, dive bombers. He's going, there's an $8,000 computer inside the dive bombers that calculate the best dive. It's in World War II. Blew my mind. August 1942, he's done with officer school. August 19th, he takes pictures with his family, waves goodbye, takes a train to D.C. This is where he meets up with his crew. 26-year-old Indiana boy Phillips, the pilot. He's Purdue ROTC. This guy speaks very few words, can fly a mean plane. Rest of the crew is 17 to 22 years old. They look like a bunch of young boys. Louis going, we're getting the B-17 I'm hearing. Is that right, flying coffin? It is. 
it's this plane with like a nine inch bomb bay you're basically walking on an olympic gymnast thing it's twenty thousand feet in the air they have a shitload of munitions in there they're going on 16 hour hauls even the fucking cool calm collected pilot phil is calling it a death trap october 1942 the crew is told to pack their bags the boys name their plane superman and they start painting it before they go on the road they fucking painted a chick's crotch over the fuselage and then put a bomb in front of it pretty badass on the other side it's superman holding a bunch of machine guns and bombs you scared yet i'm gonna have to bleep that october 10th (laughs) they're at the coast of the california's oahu band and they're reading in the papers that 19 men are going missing a day are we gonna make it to hawaii they do waikiki beach is where they land and it already looks like a war zone people are recovering from pearl harbor whole lot of waiting whole lot of training couple months go by here men are getting eager to take a stab at the enemy louis continues running on the beach he's in like olympic condition Phil, the pilot, is hot-dogging up in the air, getting to Blue Angel status. Christmas comes around. The Japanese are retreating to Atoll. The following night, 26 B-24s are sent to Atoll with 75,000 pounds of bombs. At midnight, Louis up there. It's radio silence. And then the Japs start running for their guns. They see the planes in the air. And then the formations dive chaotic explosions smoke you can't see through they say 98 men were captured from the u.s side louis called their dive a bit early so instead of hitting the bunkers his plane hit the runway bombay got stuck open they had to fly 75 miles back to midway and he's balancing on the beam what they get congratulated with a couple shots of liquor but louis like i can't drink anymore what if the Japs come and hit our island with 80,000 pounds of bombs? Most of the guys, on the other hand, they're fucking emboldened by the attack. Give me another shot. Search parties go out the following days. The Superman found a sunken B-24 from 15,000 feet up. They scoped this thing out. And Louis starting to learn that for every plane that gets lost in combat, six are lost in accidents. So like hot-dogging recon takeoff six to one you're more likely to get lost the superman it's still weathering big storms the landing gear is starting to have trouble he's just starting to figure out the high altitudes and when to dive and all this crap he says they got lucky at wake we probably should have paid more attention to the crash course (laughs) chapter three downed i'm down someone get me i have ray gun They're at the Equatorial Islands in February of 1943. One day, they make a wrong turn over Howland Island. This is where Amelia Earhart went missing a measly six years earlier. The bombing mission is above the clouds, 300 miles fucking further. They go out into the ocean. They got less than half a tank of fuel to get back, and they ditch all their bombs. All the guys sit in the cockpit, and they make it home on the Howland Island trip. And he's going... I saw sharks when we were up there. We almost went down. <laughs> he, he told the story about the Japanese. They would put food in the water, and then as soon as the sharks came up to eat the food, they threw a grenade in the shark's mouth. <laughs> Ooh, sushi. 
Nauru was an equatorial island with phosphate reserves. They used that in, like, ammo, fertilizer. August 1942, the Japs seize it. So the Superman is sent to seize the island. Twelve of them go out. They see a bunch of zeros in the airspace. It was like a 5 a.m. departure. Six hours out, six hours back. They see a U.S. sub ready to scoop up survivors. So now he's going, it's not all sharks down there. The initial AA volley tore a sheet in the metal a size of a dinner table through the plane's hole. So the Bombay is permanently open here. Louis going, I've had lucky hits this whole time. How did they miss our fuel depot? <laughs> this guy's got a guardian angel. He's going, I took down like five guys in the back of a biplane with a Type 92. Some dogfighting going on. The Zeros, they have that like bullet propeller timing. Who cares? Stanley Pillsbury, he's on the tail end in a 50 cal. Holds him off with the waist gunners, getting broadsided by zeros. <laughs> the damage is assessed after the battle. 594 bullet holes in the Superman. <laughs> they should all be dead. Two of the gunners had uh, bullet wounds. A couple of them were unconscious. Yeah, one of the guys died. They're missing hydraulic fluid and... Uh, they got a crash land. <laughs> they fucking touched down at 110 miles per hour. Louis going, should I throw a parachute out the back? Feels like that's not going to do anything. Brace for landing. All the bombers were repaired the following day. <laughs> They're getting raid ready for the raid of Tarawa. That night the sirens go off. Louis runs to like a palm tree and starts digging under it. And then he goes up in the morning. The tent he was sleeping in was blown to bits. Imagine he survived the bomb raid and then died from a coconut falling on his head. <laughs> He's going, I would rather get bombed than be up in the air at this point. <laughs> he got fucking lucky. People were running around shitting themselves. He's going, some people had heart attacks. You're like waking up to men screaming for their mommy. Louis found 35 foot deep craters. And there's another basketball-sized hole in the hole of the Superman. May 26, they fly to Koala. Phil and two of the older crew are bunking together. Louis waking up early. He's just getting in better shape again. He's running four twelves on the sand. He's like getting all the military officers to drive behind him in a jeep, putting on a show. They call him in for a search party. They're given the name the Green Hornet. This is a new plane. It has three out of four functioning engines, but they need these guys up there. They got no bombs, no ammo. <laughs> what are they doing? Louis going, I'm going to take an extra raft up there. So they're doing like an escort for the people in front of them. They fly two hours with the Daisy May in front of them before the Daisy May goes out of sight. Phil is like, we got this. You guys take off. They have a stowaway on board. This young kid, Mac, fills feather in the engines. They're hitting uh, some unlikely turbulence, probably because there's only four engines. Phil is going, somebody in the back, take controls for a minute. I got to go look in the back. And while one of these newbies turning the wrenches has control, the plane goes into a tailspin. Phil runs to the front, jacks back in. 
Louis in the back and everybody buckled in for Crash. And then it happens faster than he can remember it. Everybody in the back is saying, nobody's going to live through this. Koosh! They're sinking. The fuel tank lets out this air bubble. Louis unbuckles himself and he said he rides the air bubble to the surface. Let's go. The raft that he packed was already there floating for him. He starts inflating it. Phil comes up to the surface. His head is bleeding. Louis fucking treading water, blowing the thing, holding Hill. Phil, they get situated in the life raft. And then Mac pops up out of the water. He's throwing up. They're like, you were under there for 20 minutes. He's like, I was in an air pocket. I had to swim 50 meters up. <laughs> They're all in there. The three survivors of the crash, Phil, Mac, and Louie. The raft, they got some glass mirrors, a couple chocolate rations, a flare gun, a set of fishing hooks. The next model of rafts that was on the Superman, but not on the Green Hornet, had canopies, first aid kits, weeks of MREs. They got the dinky raft. Adrift near the equator, they got a couple liters of water, and they wake up the next day by Mac crying. We're gonna die! Day one on the life raft, six-foot sharks are circling them, and Mac goes, <laughs> I think I ate some of the chocolate last night. <laughs> Chapter 4, Missing at Sea. <laughs> The Daisy May touched down on Palmyra that afternoon, so they did send a couple search parties back out. No luck. They're thinking that they're still in some currents that surround some of the islands that they're aware of, but they have no idea where they are. They're going, we could be taken anywhere by next sunrise. A single square of chocolate is split between all of them for breakfast, and then they're going, yeah, Mac, we think he ate some of the chocolate. He's in a distant place, and Louie's going, I think he's just in shock. We'll give him a couple days to readjust. Day one, a B-52 flew by, and they shot a flare up in the air, but they ignored it because the plane was going at too high of an altitude. So Louie thinks he's able to decipher the direction of the plane here. Nothing else happens on day one. The sharks hitting them on the back put them to sleep. Day two. A B-24 flies by low. It is the Daisy May. Louis said he almost hit them with a flare. But another two days pass and no one came to rescue them. They even found like more sheet metal floating in the water. So they're going, maybe the Daisy May also crashed. Or this could just be from the entire Pacific campaign. These guys are in mental hell. Day 5, Mac snaps. We're all gonna die! fucking die he's snapping even harder and louis has to beat him into submission <laughs> this is the first night since louis childhood where he says he said a prayer all the water was gone louis family is getting like uh messages back on base they send a picture to his mom of the green hornet total swiss cheese they're basically telling their family he's dead he said on the second day of thirst their upper lip had swelled to their nose, making it so hard they couldn't breathe. They're getting crazy sunburn. They said that Phil's head wrappings started to smell so bad that they made him throw it into the ocean. And then the third day of no water comes. They swear they see a ship on the horizon. It's a gray storm cloud. 
So they get sucked into this friggin' storm, spat out with a bunch of water. They spend the day sucking the water off of the raft and spitting it into cans. Mac is guilty about the chocolate. He's like, maybe we could eat some of the leather off of our boots. <laughs> day 10. Caught at sea. The seagulls are standing on lifeless fill. They fucking try to catch one of the seagulls. And they cut its stomach open. It's putrid meat. They throw the seagull back into the ocean. That's supposed to be bad luck. But Louie's going, I don't believe in luck, Phil. Even though this motherfucker just prayed for rain for the first time and it worked. A couple weeks in, Louie's remembering his USC psych classes. He's like, we have to keep it positive. They start singing Christmas songs. Every conversation they have leads back to food, though. <laughs> He's always going, there really is a negative guy. My USC psychology one year taught me this. He's looking at his brothers and sisters in hindsight. He's saying some of the men on the raft are wired for pessimism. Mac! Day 15, they catch another seagull, and this one doesn't smell. And Louie's going, maybe we're just that hungry. Mac drinks the blood out of the seagull. <laughs> they find some fish in its stomach for bait. They start catching more fish even though they're gradually getting thinner. And the nightly prayers continue. One night they thought there was a tidal wave coming, but it was a school of dolphins. And there were a bunch of jumping fish, so they swoop some of those up. It's like life of pie. They go another six days without water. <laughs> and they just take turns jumping in the water to feel wet. Louis praying for more rain. They're doing a rain dance. And then the following day, it pours buckets. Morning of day 27, a twin-engine bomber comes by. It doubles around. The guys are celebrating. And then the plane opens fire on them. They all jump overboard. There's sharks in the water. The raft is losing air. They mistake the Japanese plane for a U.S. one. Louis says he punches a shark in the nose. They hide underneath the raft. Four more strafes, and they're all unhit. He's going, we probably should have played dead the first two passes. I guess they know for next time. <laughs> Lucky guy. They spend like half a day blowing up and patching the raft. That night, a shark leaped over the side, and so they kicked it in the head, beat it down with an oar. There's three guys in a fucking two-person raft. And they're, like, taking turns straightening their legs. Max saved Louis from a leaping shark the day after. And they're going, it's us versus the sharks at this point. Mac has this bloodlust. He's going, Louis, we need to catch a shark. So they pull in this eight-footer. Louis got it by the tail. And Mac has this screwdriver. And he pokes its eye out and just gouges the thing to death. The only edible part of the shark winds up being the liver. The whole thing stinks of ammonia. And the first time since May 27th, they're all full. The 30th day, it's the middle of the night. And they're woken up by an airborne super shark. This thing is three times the size of a normal, 20 feet long. It breaches their hull, and it douses them for the entire night they spent shivering. The subsequent days, Mac is, like, receding into his friggin' bloodlust. And on day 33, Mac dies. 
Louis going, I guess he kind of redeemed himself during Shark Week there. <laughs> you take one of them, we take one of us. When you're a shark, you're a shark all the way. <laughs> it's a blood game. They drifted down to the equatorial doldrum. It's just Phil and Louis at this point. And this is like where the air is silent, the water is flat. They're in a sensory vacuum going crazy together. If they were there with Mac, he would have been drinking seawater. This is the first time in athlete Louis's life he's going, I was unvaried and unbroken. My vine, my mind was unencumbered. He's going, this is the first time I ever thought about something for more than an hour. So he goes back in on this optimism and pessimism. One is looking for an end, and one is creating it. Chapter 5, Pow Mia. Louis's hanging on by a thread. It's the 40th day and he's hallucinating a concert of choir boys. Overhead they hear a storm brewing and they realize there's a chain of islands ahead. So they survive for another week floating around these islands. And they're like, now that we see land, we can't give up. They didn't even drink water for another six days. And then they wake up and they think they're fucking close to this island. And it's a boat. Dun, dun, dun! They're too weak to climb up the ladder. A couple men come down and drag them on board. The captain scolds them. He's going, Philly and Louie, what are you doing out there? They feed them eggs, ham, fruit salads, Russian cognac cigarettes. They apparently drifted 2,000 miles into the Marshall Islands, into Japanese waters. So they spend two days in the infirmary with this captain who's acting oddly nice to them. He's giving him beef, chocolate, coconut, sleeping in clean sheets. What a fucking difference. This captain is a G, but he's like, as soon as we get to this island, your safety is no longer guaranteed. You'll probably die. July 16th, Louis and Phil are blindfolded and taken on a barge. And then they get taken into this wooden cell full of flies and mosquitoes. They separate them into two outhouses. <laughs> you know, there's maggots on the floor. It's dirt. And they carve their names into the walls along with all the other battalions who have gone missing. He's locked in a latrine for days. He's eating biscuits and tea with no water. <laughs> and the guards are saying that they're the talk of the island. Even though this guy hasn't seen sunlight. He's talking to these guards through the wall, sniffing poop all day. Louis develops, like, stomach cramps and diarrhea. He sleeps in a fly-infested blanket. He's saying, I actually miss the raft. <laughs> One week in, he hears the same choir he did at sea, the preaching boys. And he didn't get a face of boiling water that day. The guards knew he was probably about to die. Simultaneously, Phil is dealing with rats in his outhouse, and Phil is, like, dead. <laughs> He's not really, but they had to pull him out of the outhouse sooner than Louis. <laughs> He's going, when your dignity is broken, your identi you identify by your captors. That's Stockholm Syndrome. You go through ego death, and then he's going, degradation is as lethal as a bullet. Look at Mac, who lost himself at sea. The casualties of war. Total of 20-something days they take him out of the box. 
They give him a cigarette for dinner. <laughs> Question him about the B-24 a little bit. Three weeks later, Phil and Louie finally reunite. They're going, you have PTSD too, right? It feels like you're dying every single night. Oh, yeah, me too. He's going to have this perpetual dropping feeling in my stomach like I'm on a roller coaster. Maybe it was the tailspin from 15,000 feet. They're in an interrogation chamber for a couple more days. <laughs> and they're like giving up locations of where there are bases around Hawaii. He feels super guilty. August 24th, they're told they're being taken to a POW camp in Yokohama. They're ushered into the barracks, a new rat-infested room. And who do we see here? Jimmy Sasaki. We meet again. He's the head interrogator of all the prisoner of wars in Japan. Jimmy motherfucking Sasaki. The guy who ran five-minute miles at USC and had an office in Washington, D.C. <laughs> he didn't ask questions. They were just reminiscing about the USC days. He gave Louie a backup pair of clothes, taught him where to hide, how to count in Japanese. Phil, he's still in the barracks making friends with them, getting a couple extra paper sheets to sleep under at night. At Yokohama, the days start at 6 a.m. counting off. They get beaten all day at night. If you don't understand something, you get beaten. If you talk in your sleep, you get beaten. He's talking about the Ofuna Crouch. That's where you bend down, heels to floor, hands behind your knees, and you sit there for hours. If you fall down to the side, you get beaten. The men who get put on guard duty are the dregs of the Japanese military. He's going, there's no reasoning with these men. The tradition calls for oppression. They have this thing called the iron philosophy. You have to beat each other while you're hot. <laughs> There's this guy, Sihura Kitamura. He's the Dr. Mengele of Japan. He starts beating the guards who are soft. So even the guards don't like him. A normal breakfast here consisted of stock soup, maggots, rat droppings. They had so much scurvy that it led to beriberi. And a side effect of beriberi is an inflated scrotum. bunch of big nut Americans out there a month in and they're hearing of some US shellings so Louis grabbing onto his weapon every single night they got some hope now and then there was this guy who would fucking walk by all the cells and fart into them I think that's worse than the Ofuna crouch 35 year old sub pilot Fitzgerald has pen knives jammed under his fingernails just to find out where the other subs are. This guy was waterboarded until he was knocked out. Fucking Louie met this marine who swam eight and a half hours after a shipwreck and then came up on the shores of the Philippines. He survived on ants. Sasaki is continuing to drop by. Jimmy Sasaki. He's going, you know, the Japanese have an impending victory. So even Jimmy Sasaki is kind of playing mind games with Louie at this point. Winter comes. Every captor gets sick. Famine on the Japanese front trickles down to all the prisoners. They're surviving off of tobacco to cut down on their appetite. 
the Japanese find out that Louis is an Olympian. So he's at like 80 pounds now. They're making him race in knobby need form, just making fun of him. Bro, when they took him off the raft, he was 67 pounds. <laughs> he was 140 running those four-minute miles. He's taking more beatings. He's reaching out to Sasaki for help. He's like, there's nothing I could do for you anymore. The cooks are reaching out now to uh, Louie, give him an extra portion of rice and fish. And then Jimmy Sasaki arrives finally with one last piece of good news. Phil has been moved to a camp north of Tokyo. Chapter 6, Omori. Phil is safe. Louis has lost his only other companion. September 30th, 1944, Louis and three others are told they're being relocated to Omori. This is also outside of Tokyo. Louis, Tank, and Finker are the inner circle now. And they discover their biggest enemy. This is where they finally meet the bird. Mutushori Wanatabe. He conducted his first lineup. Never look me in the eyes. Why are you no look at me? No look at me. Why you no look at me? <laughs> he can never be right. Louis meets the man finally who's going to dedicate himself to shattering him. Murutoshio Wanatabe. He studied French literature. He had an infatuation with nihilism. <laughs> Omori is basically a slave camp. You spend 11 hours a day doing backbreaking labor at a shipyard. Fucking truck floating. The Red Cross law said they had to be paid. So the workers are given 10 yen per month. <laughs> That's like less than a pack of cigarettes a month. They're eating rice and vegetables once a week. That's not that bad. For meat intestines, dog parts, and horse vagina. <laughs> Yummy. The guards are not a fan of the bird. Just like the other guy, he would snap on low-ranking officers, but the bird would actually beat them in front of the prisoners of war. He broke a guard's windpipe. He would crack people's eardrums, shatter teeth, leave men unconscious, foaming at the mouth. He had this tell whenever the bird was about to go off, his right eyelid would drag right before he snapped. He was inconsistent. The bird would carry around candy, give it to you, and then walk away. The next guy he gives candy to, as soon as you start to eat it, he would smack you on the back of the head with his bamboo stick. The campers come up with like this system for when he's in different parts of the camp. It's a university of thievery. They find out that, like, sugar is the camp currency. You could palm an oyster and put it in your pocket. Stealing wins back dignity from the enemy. Truth. Newspapers start slipping through to the prisoners. It's pretty evident that the war is ending. But, like, the war isn't over. I kind of think this is the worst part of war. You have to play the game. Uh, don't bomb this ship over here. It's a no-fly zone. But these guys are fucking in contact with each other. <laughs> like, they can technically be tried for war crimes, but they're all just seeing how much they could get away with. Louis goes deaf in his left ear one day from a beating from the bird. He's basically just his whipping boy every morning, and the bird hits him with his buckle in his ear. Louis goes months without being able to hear. November 12th, they show Louis an NBC radio transcript reporting his death. Japanese 
playing some pretty good head games here. And the men are losing an average 50 pounds every 10 months. Just say a year. They're surviving off of like rice patty runoff, which is basically excrement. <laughs> Mansfield was the top thief. This guy snuck past seven sleeping guards one night and stole Red Cross food packets. They found out about it and they tied Manfield to a tree in his pajamas for 10 days. The guards would, like, give him a blanket at night when the bird wasn't watching. Uh, Christmas comes, and the bird is up for relocation. He actually leaves, and Louis has this, like, second wind of hope. Omori becomes significantly better. March 1st, Louis is called to be transferred to Noetsu. And he goes there 300 miles away. And who's waiting for him? The bird. Another one. You ready to go, round two, bitch? Louis is feeling that his body is under a profound state of stress. The only thing they eat there is boiled seaweed and yellow, smelly water. All of the low-ranking guards are pushing Louis. One day, they push him off a ramp, and he tears a bunch of ligaments in his leg. And the bird did not like this. He's uh, an only I can hurt Louie, so he puts him on pig pen duty. Has to clean up the pigsty without any utensils. <laughs> Chapter 7. Unbroken. May 5th, 1945. Bunch of different workers are starting to share their dreams of killing the bird. Some guys successfully dumped a vial of poop and bug poison into his meal. The bird comes down with a 105 degree fever. <laughs> Warfare. They're already in a bad mood. Louis gets caught stealing fish and they fucking terrorize him. He's on the edge of death again. <laughs> he gets put on pigsty duty and then gets brought back to the brink of life. Once he's healthy again, Bird orders every man in the camp to line up and punch Louis Zamparelli in the face. <laughs> That's fucking hatred. <laughs> if they didn't punch him hard enough, go to the back of the line. Second time, if you don't punch him again, both of you get beaten. Louis said he couldn't open his mouth for a week. He couldn't see. Dude, that's one of the best scenes in the movie. <laughs> the men are all starting to wither away. Louis said he saw a man starve to death one night at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, bro. All right. B-29s are starting to fly overhead. The Japanese air defense is basically dismantled. The Omori kitchen workers are starting rumors that there are 2,000 men in camps that they are burning to death. So more of this psychological warfare. We're just going to kill all of you. Louis is, again, holding onto his metal pipe, getting ready for one last hurrah. In August, the guards march them 10 miles into the woods, and they're going, this is your new camp. They march them back the next day, but Louis like, they're finding a place to kill us. <laughs> Bird is beating Louis unconscious on the regular. The Japanese boats are destroyed, so they don't have anything to load anymore. You know, not enough work to be done, so I guess I'll just fucking beat you all day. One morning, a goat who Louis was responsible for ate all of the grain. So the next day he wakes up, the goat is dead, 
and the bird is waiting for him. <laughs> he gives him a six-foot crossbar and tells Louis to hold it over his head. Circles around him for a few minutes and then plops down on the top of a hut to watch Louis perched up like a bird. Bird tells all the guards, if he drops it, shoot him. The guards walk by laughing as the bird stretched out on the roof. He's a content cat up there. Louis not breaking eye contact with him, watching him relax. Ten minutes go by, and he is sending every second of hatred into the bird. The log is getting heavier. One of his bunkmates pass by with a load of coal, so they make eye contact. And Louis going, all right, now I got a timer. A little bit of camaraderie here. Every ten minutes, I'm looking at my homie. And then we give it to the bird. Ten more minutes pass. His consciousness is starting to slip. The guards are poking them with his rifle. Bird, done giggling. Half an hour passes, and all of the men working stop to watch. Bird's losing his patience. Louis won't break eye contact with him. There's tears welling in his eyes. He wants to take the fucking bird's soul. An hour passes, and Louis can see that his right eye is starting to twitch. Louis remembering all the fucking miles he put in, all the bullets he dodged, all the sharks he stabbed. There's no way the fucking bird is going to best him. This little French fucking nihilist. <laughs> Placing the Olympics, feeling the victory, drinking a beer from Adolf Hitler. You can't let this fucker win. <laughs> He's doing it for all of them, all the prisoners in the camp for every act that brought him here. In a final act of defiance, Louis presses the bar above his head, a full extension, lets out a scream, ah! and all of the men cheer. The bird jumps off the roof, don't look at me, don't look at me! He beats him in the legs with the kendo stick, he falls to his knees. Louis is on the ground, everybody goes back to work, and he's dragged to the infirmary. His dysentery is in extreme severity. Bird visits him the next day. Louis, tomorrow I am going to drown you. <laughs> they both know that he's too weak to be beaten the following day. <laughs> it was August 6th. That's when Hiroshima was microwaved. So a few more days go by. August 9th, Nagasaki disappears from the map. And the bird is going, the war is kind of over. The prisoners of war, people are taking notes now. So August 15th, the bird finally left the camp. And it was rumored August 22nd is the kill date. They're going to gas us all. The radio comes over, the war is over, and everybody's happy. August 20th, five days after the Japanese surrender, the guards say that the war has ended. They break them into groups. Mustangs are flying overhead. The PAs are screaming, the war is over, the war is over. Everybody at the camp is going wild. And this is when the Japanese guards finally take a knee. Bro, it's a fucking soccer game. They had them in lines. And once they saw the American ships, it's over, war is over. They have chocolates dropping from the sky with little messages on them. It says head up to Tokyo and we'll have a ship there waiting for you guys. August 24th, they wake up to a little air show from Allied troops. Why would you sleep in the camp again? I'd go to Tokyo that fucking night. 
the numbers are in. 132,000 prisoners of war were scattered around Japan. 36,000 died. That's 100,000 men with a story similar to this. Bro, the pictures in this book... <laughs> like, the one that fucking stuck in my head, there was a guy who was so skinny, like Holocaust skinny, that he died trying to take a drink of water from a faucet. I think that story was better. He saw a guy die at the dinner table. <laughs> if you haven't realized my point through every fucking 170 books by now, the only winning side to war is the 1%. That's not to say war is where men are made. Tenacity, obstinacy, willpower. Louis Zamparelli, unbroken. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Next week on the show, we have got a mystery edition coming up. Just wrapping up the uh, book section now. We got like five minutes left. Harry Schwann on Instagram, patreon.com slash the niche. Let's get a random soundboard effect for unbroken. Oh, a little bit of the bubbly. Bubbly. Nick Mune is about to go take a piss. I will be right back. Goddamn. That was one hell of a story. Yeah, Louis Zamparelli. He's a hero. No, nurses who dance are heroes. Is that going to be the first bit? What is a hero? Let me take a hit of the G pen. The G pen is clogged. Unclogged. Oh, yeah, baby. It's been two years, Daddy. I'm not allowed to use the soundboard in this section. <sighs> All right. So I guess, like, I'm a fucking hero. Like, <laughs> I'm unbroken, man. I've been doing book videos for, like, three fucking years, and uh, I'm basically unbeatable at this point. <coughs> so how did this fuck survive, bro? He's going dignity? <coughs> Dig deep in itty. Dig deep in that puss in itty. Fucking knowing who your enemy is. That's gotta help. That guy was on the brink of death. As long as you could look your fucking enemy in the eye. And that's the problem. You know where I'm going with this, bro. People are confused by who their enemy is. It's not each other. If I just fucking did left versus right shit here. That's how you get big. <laughs> I'm thinking of that movie Ender's Game right now. The only reason that this kid was chosen to rise the ranks is because you have to give the message that the power structure wants. Division. Fear. Uh, talk about conspiracies and shit, bruh. I mean... Who should be the enemy in life? I don't think that's the message today. Unbroken. D not Never saying no. Even when you're like three knuckles deep in her. Get it? It was a rape joke. Now. Now, now, now. <laughs> 
This has to be someone's favorite section of the show for some reason, unbeknownst to me. Dumpster trash. These fucking Italians. They used to be war heroes. <laughs> Italian Americans. No, we don't need any of that. <coughs> <coughs> so I was at a friend's house recently. <coughs> I saw a dead cockroach. <coughs> like, are you supposed to tell them? Or do you, like, kick it under the fucking table to a place neither of you could see it? Because I'm not trying to put anybody on blast here. It's different than, like, if there's a booger in my nose, you better fucking tell me. But, homie, you got fucking cockroaches in your kitchen. <laughs> I don't know. You'll find that shit yourself, right? What would you do? I don't think women, or maybe they would, they're too nice. They would pick it up. And fucking put it somewhere or something. What's that quality to calling people outness? If you could have one quality or ability, what would it be? I just fucking figured it out. You just fucking ask yourself questions. <laughs> I'm not doing my material for you here, but if you just fucking want riffing... I guess that would be the ability then that I want. <laughs> so it do be snowing. It do be snowing today. But that cockroach is more interesting than snow. Louis Zamparelli. Squidward Tortellini. SpongeBob. We got any spongers out there? Spongebob. What if he was Spongebob triangle pants? <laughs> Would you rather have success or love or money? That was a bad one. Kill, fuck, marry. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Melinda Gates. Kill all three. It's jokes, kind of. So, <laughs> we got a couple minutes. You ever scratch your neck? That do be feeling good. Yo, being a zoo animal, it really looks good when they scratch. This is a bit, but I will tell you, I had a poison ivy on my balls once, and that was the best scratch I ever felt. <laughs> We learned about beriberi today. That's basically how large my scrotum was inflated to. I think that's where we're going to have to end it. Yeah, that's where this one ends. Nick Muniz signing off. Another bonus segment in the bag. I love you guys, the YouTubers. If you want me to keep doing this, let me know. Does the show need to be an hour? It's up to you. I'll be out here unfucking broken for weeks to come until we die learning laughing. I seriously love you guys. Peace. <laughs>